It's episode 76 of the Planet LP podcast. I'm Ted Asfogadu. This episode will spotlight new music with Keith Creighton from Pop Dose, as we do every month. And we're going to talk a little bit about the 2023 inductees to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But before chatting with Keith, I had a chance to talk to another Pop Dose alumni about the music of Gordon Lightfoot. We'll get to that segment in a bit. I so appreciate any boost you can give the podcast in terms of recommending it to family, friends, or acquaintances, or really whoever you know who loves discussions about music. Planet LP is on the most popular podcasting apps. And if you don't bother with podcasting apps, just go to the website, planetlp.com. You can listen to any episode there. On the social channels, we are on the following Facebook, Instagram, Groupie, and Twitter. Just search for Planet LP. Give us a follow. We sure appreciate it. Okay, good shipping crew, let's remember Gordon Lightfoot and the music he created for decades. When news broke that singer-songwriter and national treasure of Canada, Gordon Meredith Lightfoot Jr. died at the age of 84 in Toronto, it wasn't entirely unexpected. I mean, the guy was 84. He had a long career in music. He survived an aneurysm and a stroke, and he came back from both of those. His music is definitely on the folksy side, and he's sometimes compared with Bob Dylan in terms of his lyrics. Side note, he and Bob Dylan were friendly and admired each other's music. He wasn't alone. Lightfoot's music made him an incredibly successful musician with his career peaking right around the 1970s. To talk a bit about Gordon Lightfoot's music, Jeff Giles, the founder of Popdose. Yes, the Grand Poobah is here. Hello, Jeff. <laughs> hey, Ted. Thank you for inviting me. Always a pleasure to have you on, my friend. So when did you first hear Gordon Lightfoot's music, and what was the song? Because you and I are about almost a decade apart. You're younger than I am. And when I first heard it, I was a boy, but when did you first come to Gordon Lightfoot's music? I feel like I must have been a kid as well. I think he's one of those artists that's just sort of part of the fabric. I couldn't tell you the first time I heard one of his songs. I couldn't tell you what it was, but I am pretty sure I must have heard a lot of If You Could Read My Mind and mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. like, Run Down and Carefree Highway, all that stuff. Because, yeah, he, he's just kind of always been there for people our age at least i didn't really dig into his stuff until relatively recently i think for some artists who release new music on a pretty regular basis and in a fairly consistent fashion it can be easy for people to kind of forget that they're special you know like mm. i you just sort of take them for granted like every two or three years here's a new album and kind of sounds like the other ones and and after a while you you sort of i don't know fall out of love i guess and and uh taken for granted that's that's the best way i can put it so for me gordon lightfoot was was kind of part of the background noise of uh mainstream music relatively recently i for, for whatever reason i i had the impulse to take a trip through his entire discography oh wow and that's not nothing that's a lot of records <laughs> <It's> not, <laughs> i'm taking it maybe you heard him on the radio or did your parents buy the buy his records and they had them in the house we didn't have gourds gold in the house or anything like that the first gordon lightfoot album that i actually had was the one that he put out in 1993 waiting for you waiting for you was the first one that i owned and that was just because i was reviewing music at that time and warner brothers mm -hmm. sent 
promo copy. It was kind of a comeback album for him. Like a lot of artists of what I guess I would call his ilk, uh, he seemed sort of adrift during the 80s. Yeah. yeah. His stuff got to be more polished, a little more mechanized. That didn't really jive with Gordon Lightfoot's sound. If, if, if you're hearing this and you're at all familiar with Gordon Lightfoot's music, you know that for the most part, it's pretty stripped back. You know, there's not a lot of production. In, in many cases, it's just him and his guitar. Yeah. And that's yeah. really all those songs needed. So uh, right around 1986, I think he, he kind of bottomed out and took some time off. And so he came back in the early 90s and I had that album. And, you know, I don't know. I thought it was, I thought it was pleasant enough. But at that point in time, as a, uh, as a 19-year-old, idiot <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I don't remember that there was anything about that album that really you know particularly resonated with me did you give it a bad review or did you just say you know it's passable or yeah i think i just kind of gave it the pass I, I, I don't think he ever did anything that was anything less than totally competent but he he, he wasn't singing about stuff that resonated with me as a 19 year old i guess mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and i don't think i thought about him again until um I can't remember the name of the artist, but there was a guy who in the late 90s did sort of a, a hip hop cover of Sundown. Do you know oh, I remember that. Yeah. 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 Like that, that was the next time I thought about Old Ford. have it laced into a hip hop song that's even even better a nice callback there it's uh yeah and i think that song it kind of encapsulates what makes what what sort of sets him apart in that field i suppose you know when you when you th- when you think about a canadian with a guitar with an acoustic guitar uh in the late 60s early 70s you probably you probably imagine something very wispy i guess uh overly pleasant hippie like yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But I yeah. think a lot of his stuff had a, a real darkness to it. You know, mm-hmm. sharp, mm-hmm. sharp teeth and yellow eyes. And Sundown is, yeah, if you listen to the lyrics, the song is kind of a fucked up song. So it's, <laughs> it definitely. <laughs> I was thinking about my family because Gordon Lightfoot's music played a big part of my childhood. It was some of the earliest memories that I have of hearing his music either in the house or on the radio. And my mom was a big fan from the, probably the late sixties, early seventies. My father used to call my mother, Miss Malaprops because she always created unique words and even phrases. And she still does to this day. She always messes up something, but I think my brother, Steve also gets a little Malaproppy sometimes case in point is the song beautiful, which is a very lovely song, which when he heard it as a boy, he maybe was around six or seven, he thought that Gordon Lightfoot was singing Gikara, 
during this part of the song, I'll play you a little piece. At times I just don't know how you could be anything but beautiful. Think that I made for you. You were made for me. So I told, I talked to Steve the other day and I said, it's okay if I use this story. He said, that's fine. I said, where did you come up with Gikara? He goes, I don't know. I was like six or something. He goes, what is he really saying? I think that I, he goes, oh my God. (laughs) So I played it for my wife and she goes, no, I hear Gikara now. (laughs) Now you can't unhear that. Isn't it? It's so satisfying when something that you've misheard for untold years is revealed to you at last. It's like having a splinter taken out that you didn't even know was there. (laughs) That's what he was saying the whole time? I think that I? Not Gikara? Okay. So now Planet LP listeners can, they're all going to hear that going forward, (laughs) I think. What do you think makes his music so appealing across generations? I mean, we're talking about our own childhoods. I think there are a couple of things. He's pretty unique in that when I went back and I listened to his discography from start to finish, I was really struck by how fully formed he sounded from the very beginning. He, mm-hmm. he There was nothing embryonic about his early sound. It was like he just arrived. Here I am. I'm Gordon Lightfoot. When he really started to hit his stride in the 70s with stuff like If You Could Read My Mind, maybe he was writing at a little bit of a higher level, but... Not by much. With most artists, when you go back to the beginning, you kind of have to be willing to accept that a portion, at least, of the early material will be kind of like naked baby pictures. And (laughs) he doesn't really like that with life. He was was a really rock-solid songwriter and a confident-sounding performer from the very beginning. So there's a body of work there, I think, much more consistent than many artists. And I think it also helped him that he tended to favor production that still sounds fairly timeless. Well, yeah, you know, he, I was thinking about some of the early albums, like you've listened to every record from the 1996, 1966, excuse me, Lightfoot, yeah. 1967's The Way I Feel, that title track, it's very haunting. And it almost sounds like the Moody Blues in a yeah. way. I mean, let me play a quick clip of that. See what I mean? It's got that kind of haunting feel to it. And the guitar is very, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald with its emotional feel on the guitar work. Yeah. I mean, again, there was to his, there's a, there's a real, it's a subtle edge, but there's an edge to a lot of his stuff that you don't normally tend to associate with folky Mm -hmm. singer-songwriter. He made interesting music and was not, buffeted about by changing trends as as much as many if not most of his peers so yeah, yeah. i think yeah for for the most part you can just kind of 
pick a Lightfoot record and and jump in, and, and you're not gonna. Nothing is gonna sound dated. Nothing is going to sound embarrassing. He's he's he was always who he was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One of my earliest memories is going into San Francisco with my mother. Well, this has to do with Gordon Lightfoot, but one of the earliest memories of hearing Gordon Lightfoot's music was I was on the Bay Bridge with my mom. We were in like a Camaro that she had, a green Camaro, and we were listening to the radio, probably KFRC or KYA. Those are the only two radio stations I remembered listening to. And If You Could Read My Mind came on, and my mom said, oh, I love this song, and she turned it up. And she was singing along to it. And I was looking out the window at the at the water. I just thought the, the song was about a ghost because he mentions the word ghost three times in one verse. I thought, oh, this is a story about a ghost. Okay. He's at a wishing well. And that's what it was, right? So to this day, I don't still think that, but I know it's about the breakup of his marriage. And I told my mother that. I said, you remember when we went into the city? It was probably, I don't know, 70, 71. And you and I were just in the car and- the song came on and you were singing along. She goes, no, I don't remember any of that. <laughs> yeah. so, but I said, you know, I really thought it was about a ghost. And she goes, oh, yeah. She, I said, you know what the song's really about? She goes, not really, no. It's about the breakup of his marriage. She goes, really? I just loved his voice so much. I was just sort of like lost in his voice and the guitar. And it was just such a, it had this emotional appeal that I didn't really dig into the lyrics. <laughs> so, so people come to music in different ways. And I, I thought that- yeah, uh, yeah after yeah, all these stuff, years, especially, yeah. especially songs like that, his stuff was intensely melodic. You know, yeah, you, could, yeah. you can really enjoy it on a surface level without mm-hmm. paying attention. And she always falls in love with the uh, singers' voices, mostly men. But uh, so she kind of just gets lost in their the sound of their voice, not so much of what they're singing. Uh, the, he the had a very lyrically. distinctive voice too. Yeah, he did. He certainly did. So I've asked this question to guests on the previous podcast, which was on Rush, another Canadian treasure. And I'll ask it of you. What album would you give to someone and say, here, do you want to know what makes Gordon Lightfoot so great? Listen to this. What album would that be? Well, I will qualify this by saying that I think for the most part, you could start pretty much anywhere. But if I really had to pick a record, I think I would choose Sundown because that's the one with Sundown on it. That's Mm -hmm. the one Carefree Highway which I like about as much as, if not more than, uh, if you could read my mind. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I guess I would pick that one. I yeah, that's probably, a good one. At least commercially speaking, it's kind of all downhill from there. Yeah. I mean, for singles, I was just kind of a singles guy for yeah. Gordon Lightfoot. Like, you know, whatever was on the radio, whatever the hits were. So, you know, you can rattle off everything from... If you could read my mind through sundown to the wreck of it, the Edmund Fitzgerald, and in between, I would say, oh, those are all great songs. You know, Gord's Gold, of course. I would actually go with that 1967, The Way I Feel, because it's got a couple of cool songs on there, like The Way I Feel, but also that that Canadian Railroad trilogy, and then Song for a Winter's Night, which I did not know he wrote. Uh, There's this Christmas album that I have that's got Sarah McLaughlin doing this song. Yep. And I thought that she wrote it. I didn't check the album credits. And I'm just listening to this the other day, and I'm like, wait, Gordon Lightfoot <laughs> wrote this song? You covered wow. Sarah McLaughlin before she was born? <laughs> wow. 
he's got a flux capacitor. Of course he does. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, he was, he came out of the, the record label womb as a fully formed artist. I think mm-hmm. yeah, that's a really solid pick and it really reinforces what set him apart. He, his earliest records are surprisingly solid top to bottom. And one thing that I didn't notice and until my daughter pointed it out is that he often does a vibrato with his voice. Yeah. Which yeah. I never I never pick up on it. She was she was kind of joking around, you know, you could read my, my love. Like, <laughs> like, hey, that's a pretty song. I mean, it's very nice. She goes, Yeah, but listen to the the vibrato that he's doing. I'm all like, it's not that bad. I mean, it's not that pronounced. There were definitely people who who were worse at the time. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. So we'll leave it there. But I, I just wanted to thank you, Jeff, for for coming on and sharing some thoughts and memories about Gordon Lightfoot. You know, he had a, such a a solid and long career in the music industry, and how much of a national treasure in his home country of Canada, he was, and is to this day. We in the United States tend to think of our musical heroes either as American or British, and then forget about other countries, and then they they have their heroes too. We don't automatically think of Gordon Lightfoot as a national treasure, like Canada would say, yeah, Gordon Lightfoot. But if you saw that documentary that was made about him, boy, there are a lot of people affected by his music in a very, very good and powerful way. Rightly so. I think the only other thing that I would add is that the late period of his career, even though most people, particularly in the United States, didn't really pay attention, is surprisingly solid. I think most artists that get to that stage, you get to be somebody like Gordon Lightfoot in the twilight of his life, and you're still making albums. A lot of those records tend to be uh, artistically dodgy. You know, you, you make duets albums or you cut covers or you, I don't know, like you're, you're not, you're not really digging anymore, but he never stopped. And he, his last album, it's just him and his guitar. He went out, yeah. he yeah. came in. He seemed like a really stubborn motherfucker about, <laughs> he really did it the way he wanted to do it. He didn't seem particularly interested in chasing the brass ring after the hits stopped coming. It seemed like he did the work because he needed to and he enjoyed it. And so I think that's that's worth celebrating. That is, absolutely. Jeff, thank you so much for being on the planet. Always a joy to talk to you. Thanks for inviting me, Ted. I always love talking about music with you. Well, as we turn the page from Gordon Lightfoot to new music, who better to talk about new music releases in the month of May than Popdose writer Keith Creighton. Hi there, Keith. How's it going? Doing well. Lots of diverse new releases for this month of May, and we'll get to those in a sec, but we wanted to talk a little bit about the 2023 inductees for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and I made a mistake a few podcasts ago when the nominees were announced. I called them inductees, and you were quick to correct me and say, it's actually nominees. They haven't been inducted yet. The performer category is what we want to concentrate on. And I think you summed it up before we started recording that these were kind of safe bets, I guess, or just not that interesting. This is no longer the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They should just call it the Popular Music Hall of Fame, because that's really what they're going for now. 
Right. I mean, I'd see Willie Nelson. They brought him in because, of course, rock was built off of country music. But it's one of those things where there's already a country music hall of fame, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's one of those right. things where it's not as if Willie did that much in the rock and roll sphere. I mean, he did some. He had a lot of crossover hits. And everyone loves Willie Nelson. And, of course, if you saw his recent performance, you know, for his 90th birthday, he can still bring down the house. So I think it's they're, you know, betting that he's going to make really good television. But, you know, Sheryl Crow. I mean, when considering yeah. between her and Cindy Lauper, Cindy Lauper at least had many hits off of many albums in different eras. And Show Crow, what did she really have outside of that one really big album? She's very likable, you know. She seems like the the kind of singer who could easily just get slotted into whatever iteration of Fleetwood Mac comes down the pike. She writes some good songs. I I have a I would say like four Sheryl Crow albums, and I really kind of dug her music in the early '90s. I it was um, it was good pop. It had some good hooks, but is it at the level of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I mean, has she really done yeah. a lot to change music or shatter norms? I don't know. Yeah. I would say Cindy Lauper has done more than than Sheryl yeah. Crow has. You know, because even in addition to Cindy Lauper's big hit, Girls Want Just Want to Have Fun, True Colors has become an anthem that's gone for decades now, you know, especially in the LGBT community. Uh-huh. And so it's just one of those things where look at how many epic bands, you know, there's tons and tons of blogs out there that list all these just monumental bands that have still a, never even been nominated or have been nominated many times, and never gotten in. Mm-hmm. And so it's really ridiculous that, you know, I'm even going to say it's ridiculous that Sheryl Crow's in and Motley Crue and Poison are not. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, okay, let's give some hair metal some love. Let's get lots of epic alternative bands the nod. And especially looking at how seminal New Order and Joy Division have been to the complete development of modern music. What they did in the 70s as Joy Division was just radically different and completely kind of paradigm shifting for popular culture. And then the fact over the first decade of their career, they went from Joy Division to Technique, very mainstream arena friendly Mm -hmm. dance music, and then everything that happened in between. I mean, just looking at Power Corruption and Lies and Low Life and what they accomplished on those records. And then, of course, really bringing out the art of the 12 inch. I mean, they still have the best selling 12 inch single of all time with Blue Monday. That to me is what Rock and Roll Hall of Fame should be all about. Just celebrating the not only the longevity of a career, but how much innovation occurred in that artist's creative output for a band or artist's creative output. Iron Maiden was was nominated and Rage Against the Machine gets inducted. I've listened to both bands. I'm not a super fan of either, but I would think that Iron Maiden would have been a better fit. I don't know if they've gotten innovative or not, but- they certainly have a long duration. Yeah, I mean, a long duration and a big impact. And it's one of those things where Raging Against the Machine was popular for a small period of time. Mm-mm. And I think that nomination also is probably more about Tom Morello, because Tom Morello is a big part of, I hate to say it, the machine, the music yeah, industry, yeah, yeah. in terms of he does a lot of guest work, a lot of production work. And so I think he's even probably performed at the Rock Hall countless times in some of those big bands. And so I think it was probably more to get him in. Then it's kind of weird that George Michael gets in and Wham doesn't. Yeah. You know, like if they're going to do yeah. New Order and Joy Division together, why didn't they do George Michael and Wham so Andrew Ridgely can get in as well? Because, I mean, George Michael would have been nowhere without the first half of his entire career. 
you know, mm-hmm. which was the Wham stuff. And if you watch the George Michael documentary and there's another one coming out, you know, it's really a remarkable what they did in those years before Michael went off to solo success. So, and the same thing, I love Missy Elliott, but also mm-hmm. she had a very small period where she was at the top of her game in terms of, you know, cultural relevance. I think they were like, okay, we got to get, you know, some more rappers in there just to broaden the audience, you know, and make it sure that there's something for everybody in this. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. just looking at who got bumped, you know, I just don't think, you know, Missy Elliott's time was quite yet for this. But, you know, and the same thing, Kate Bush was always the eternal bridesmaid on this. And I'm a huge, huge, huge Kate Bush fan. But it wasn't until the Stranger Things that put her back on top of the charts that most people noticed her. You know, Mm -hmm, so once again, mm -hmm. I was like, okay, this has nothing to do with her artistic merit. This was because she had a hit. You know, and so it's, uh, you know, it's once again, it's a nod to popularity. It's not a nod to quality or cultural impact or anything like that or longevity. All right. Now let's get to the new music releases. And there's some, uh, as I said at the outset, there's a lot of variety in your picks this month. And we're going to start with a band called The Heavy. So almost everybody knows the song, How You Like Me Now. It was one of those things where it was in a car commercial. It's been in video games. You know, the the Heavy is one of these interesting bands. They're from Somerset or Bath, Somerset, England. Mm-hmm. They probably get more play in movies, TV shows, commercials, and video games than they do on the radio. They have a really great sound, you know, so it's kind of like James Brown fronting the Dap Kings from Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. Especially on that song you just referenced. It's oh definitely there. Yeah. Like How You Like Me Now and the track that came off that or right after that on the same album was 16. To me, that's one of the best one-two punches in music of this century. It's on the album, The House of Dirt Built. And so they got six albums out now. This new one, you know, it kind of just delivers the same sound. Like when you have a sound that's that, that's that good, if they just stick the lane, you know, it's always going to be a good album, you know? And so I have all six on CD and I think they're all great. So if you like James Brown, Lenny Kravitz and the Sharon Jones and the Dap King sound, you're in the right place. So yeah, highly recommend Amen by The Heavy. So we're going back to the 80s in a way with this next pick, The Damned Are Back. Yeah. like Here's another one. Speaking of the Rock Hall, why the hell aren't The Damned in the Rock Hall? Even though I still think the Stooges, Iggy and the Stooges were mm-hmm. like the kind of the, the root of punk rock. But, you know, most journalists say that The Damned put out the first punk rock seven inch single. You know, you figure that was 46 years ago now, and they're no. just on album number 12. <laughs> and so, but it's one of those things where when they put out a record, it's usually a really good record. I saw them in Chicago at Metro probably 20 years ago now, and they just brought that house down. And so the fact that now 20 years on, they're still going and they still sound as scrappy and outrageous as ever is just amazing. Get into the opening track, you know, the invisible man, and it's kind of like blows in it's delivering, you know, so you get the, 
the chorus and the, the verse and you kind of see where it's going. And then all of a sudden the entire track just takes a complete left turn into yes. something completely different. <laughs> and I just love the fact that they still got so many surprises left in them. It made me inspired, even though I already had a previous damned compilation called the light at the end of the tunnel, I decided to pick up their anthology just to kind of catch up on all the stuff that's happened between the two series. Man, this is a band that still has tons to say. Punk was always known for like, oh, you don't have to play your instruments. You just have to have attitude. You know, the damned always had attitude, but they also really can play their instruments. And you could definitely hear that pyrotechnics throughout this whole album. Yeah. And I think you're right about that album opener. The Invisible Man is just a fantastic album opener. That tempo change that happens, it just brings the right amount of spice to the song. I was just like, this is really good. I want to hear it again. Listening to this record made me think back a couple of podcasts, you know, where we talked about the latest albums by Def Leppard and Journey. Mm-hmm. And then the more I thought about it, it may like fold into those, like probably the last two decades of Prince's career. All those albums, I liked them and mm-hmm. I say great things yeah. about them, but all they really did at their best was remind me of the heyday. You know, there was just enough of an echo to call back to the heyday and the sound that I loved so much that I was happy to have some new music by them. With the Damned record with Darkadelic, this is really meant to be a push forward in their career and an album that stands on its own as its own artistic statement. Because like the art of the album in this era of singles and streaming is kind of going away. And yeah, so definitely. You know, this thing really stands up with their best stuff. These guys just have so much left to say. And so I'm just really excited to kind of really let the layers of Darkadella kind of reveal themselves over multiple plays in the summer to come. So now we we turn to a band and one that I've loved early on, but then they got Stranger. And this current release is, is a very strange album. And I'm talking about Smashing Pumpkins. When Billy, you know, more than a year ago said, I'm mm-hmm. going to be releasing a triple album follow-up to Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness from 1995, which is one of the my favorite records of all time. You know, I'm like, okay, you know, you promised that with like, the, I think they called it the Tear Garden by Kaleidoscope or something, 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 you know, it was supposed to be as one of his multi-album ambitions from years ago. Right. And he never really delivered on that. And I think he like one or two records were kind of in this, you know, the spectrum of the series he was supposed to have. So right, right. at least with the Atom, you know, I think that's how you say it. You know, Atom I think it's Atom. Autumn. I think Autumn? he said it was Autumn, yeah. Oh, okay. God, yeah. I've been calling it Atom this whole yeah. time. Because it's spelled A-T-U-M, so it's easy to go Atom. You know? <laughs> yeah. He was smart enough to release this digitally one album at a time. And in May, it finally came out on CD and vinyl, so you can actually have them all together. Mm-hmm. You know, because he said there was a lot of music. He didn't want people trying to process it all at once. And so I've really enjoyed just kind of listening to him as an album, realizing, oh, every couple of months, there's a new Smashing Pumpkins record coming out. And I've really liked this one a lot more than some of his early reunion stuff. Like you, I think, you know, the original run of the Pumpkins, to me, was one of the most exciting runs a band has ever had. When the Smashing Pumpkins cassette with Jennifer Ever, and then that went into Gish, and that went into Siamese Dream, and then Melancholy, and then Adore. It was an incredible run. He was really prolific, and almost everything was amazing. I mean, just look at the B-sides to Melancholy spawned their own five-disc box set, which then got re-released recently as a multi-multi-disc mega box set. Most of his stuff was great until the Machina, the Machina Gods kind of Mm -hmm. really went off the rails, and then it was over. And then he put out Zwan. Zwan was an absolutely fantastic record. 
And then, you know, he tried to reclaim the Smashing Pumpkins brand, but without any of the other original musicians. And you really see, even though Billy probably did a lot of the writing and recording, there's something about the chemistry of the people that make a band special. Because really what happened when the, we went off the rails the first time was first Jimmy left the band because of his drug problems. And then Darcy left the band and Jimmy came back. And then when Billy kind of re- recollected the brand, nobody was with him. And so really those early albums like Zeitgeist and stuff, you know, Zeitgeist to me was really boring, but then Oceana was good, but nothing was going beyond three stars for me. And so now he's got James and Jimmy Chamberlain back. back. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's got two thirds. He still needs a woman. He needs some feminine energy in the band. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, because I look at, okay, if not Darcy, you know, Melissa Oftimar still around. Yep. I said on a previous podcast, Jenny V from Queens of the Stone Age, who puts out lots of great solo work that's in the line of Depeche Mode, would be a great, you know, bassist for him. Then there's also Paz. I don't know how to say her last name, but like Lynn Chatin. She's with the Pixies right now. She was with Swan, mm-hmm. you know, and like she would be a good mix. And then also I was thinking about Amanda Tannen from Stella Star, you know, just somebody that's a good songwriter could add a little feminine femininity to the mix, I think would make them like an epic A-lister band again. But I really enjoyed Autumn. You did like strange, it, huh? Okay. Yeah, the strange thing is, um, you know, I've been listening to it on digital and so then finally I'm like, oh, I'm going to bust out this, the booklet that comes with the CDs that came a couple of weeks ago. And it turns mm-hmm. out it reads like a playbill from a Broadway show. Oh. You have an introduction to the cast. You know, there's Shiny, a former artist of great renown, also known as Zero or Glass, presently 70s in his age. You know, so he literally introduces Shiny, June, the Seraphim, or Zaria, Nighthawk, Dr. H, the Night Watchman, and Ruby. That's your cast for this album. And then instead of a lyric book, he literally goes through every song stating the plot points that you would see on stage. Oh, okay. So this is a real concept thing. Yeah, I guess it is a high concept thing. And I, right now, I'm just, I'm not going to read that. I want to just kind of let the songs still sink in. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just enjoying the songs. So yeah, I mean, I'm just kind of glad that, you know, okay, they're not maybe back to five star records, but this is a good four star record. I felt like it was a real endurance test for me. You know, 33 songs, two hours and 18 minutes. That's a, that's a real commitment. I think that there was some real good songs laced into the weird stuff. Now that I know it's basically a play, I understand there's interstitial music and things like that, but I really felt like things started to come together on disc three. That was the most accessible, mm-hmm. more radio friendly songs. But when I did get to disc three, I felt like most of the songs felt more melodic, but Hey, you know what? Hats off to smashing pumpkins, Billy Corgan for keeping his freak flag flying because, you know, uh, we were talking about artists that kind of coast yeah. artists that innovate and I admire him for trying to innovate the pumpkins. I mean, like you said, those early records, they're just solid. And I go back to them and listen to them and just feel the power and the energy of them. And then, you know, when artists sometimes make a left turn, some fans kind of abandon them and he's, he's doing what, what his muse is telling him, I guess. And he, yeah. Yeah, keep going and well, keep doing well, what you're doing. Well, if three discs was too much, gird your loins because yeah. his next project is going to be five or six discs. <laughs>
This next pick, you told me, because I was like telling you, like, man, I haven't had a chance to listen to much new, new music. And you said, all right, do yourself a favor. If you're just going to listen to one album, listen to this one. It is really good. And take it away. What is it? Yeah, Jesse Ware, that yeah. feels good. Oh yeah. my God, what a banger this record is. And we'll kind of talk about the next three records all pretty quickly together. Mm-hmm. There's some really good pop music coming out, you know? So we just talked about some of our hard rockers and stuff. So now let's talk about how innovation is really happening in the pop space. Mm-hmm. And so Jesse Ware is back with her latest album. She debuted around, she had a Mercury Prize nominated album in 2012. Very kind of middle of the road, you know, fans of Adele type music. She put out a bunch of warmly received records that were mainly hits in the UK. But then in 2020, she really joined that kind of disco revival. And so she put out a just a absolutely spectacular disco record. The same year, I kind of ranked them up there with the Kylie Minogue disco record and the Dua mm-hmm. Lipa, you know, Future Nostalgia. And now she just takes disco to an absolutely new level that I haven't heard from anybody. I mean, it's a lush, sophisticated, sounds great on a good stereo system. Mm-hmm. And the thing mm-hmm. I love about it, it's unabashedly adult. This is not trying to be teen pop. She's not trying to compete with the young kids. Like she's sophisticated. She's mature. And oh my God, to hear what she's doing with disco, it's just absolutely fantastic. It's a throwback sound to mid seventies disco and soul. The production on this record is really good. And to me, it screams sexual revolution. If it feels good, do it (laughs) right there in the title. That feels good. And at the beginning, you hear these sort of montage of voices that feels good. Ooh, that feels good. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, this is going to be a real sexual record, sexual, sexual chocolate. Okay. (laughs) And she's been saying in interviews, she's really found her voice with this, you know, because instead of being an also ran, you know, where other artists are bigger, like trying to compete in like the Lady Gaga world or something like that, or even Dua Lipa, she's really staked out her own sound and really owns it. And oh my God, the critics are losing their minds over this record. And so I think it's going to wind up in a lot of best of lists at the end of the year. So it'll probably end up on our best of at the end of the year. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Right now, this is a front runner for mine, but you said the next two artists are very similar in terms of the dance vibe yeah. that they give off. We yeah. talked about how, you know, Jesse Ware has definitely put out an adult record. Well, here's the stuff that's really as basically as mainstream youth centered pop as you get. Baby Rexa, I think it's Baby or maybe it's BB. BB Rexa. It looks like BB, like BB Galini from, you know, the Brady Bunch episode back in the Oh, day. there you go. There's <laughs> a reference. Wow. <laughs> Oh my God. Fluffier, Michael. Fluffier. There you go. I found out about her through Charlie XCX, why that's mm-hmm. one of my favorite artists of the last 15 years. And so she guested on Girls with Cardi B. And Girls was a controversial song because people like, you know, Haley Kiyoko said that they were queer baiting with it. I really defended them. I love the song and I just thought it was about consensual intimacy. You know, you don't have to be gay to explore your sexuality with your friends. And that's kind of what the song was about. But that song then turned me on to BB Rexa as well as Haley Kyoko. I have now all of Haley's records. I love everybody. I love the name of BB's first single, which was I Can't Stop Drinking About You. <laughs> I just thought that was clever. And it's a really good song. Her latest is actually, you know, she's decided to rework and completely modernize the epitome of Eurodance, which was Eiffel 65's Blue, Dada B, Bada Boo, Bada B. I don't. 
I'm blue, bada bee, da da do do bada bee, I'm blue, do 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 do. Oh my god, it's like so 90s. It is like just it would remember Eurodance, that entire phenomenon in the 90s. Yeah, right. They were really at the top. She's kind of remade it, her own modern anthem, and I think it's already like nearing in like a couple hundred million streams. This is doing really well. Dolly Parton and Snoop Dogg show up on this record. I do like this the one she does with Snoop Dogg Satellite. Yeah. Her vocal phrasing at one point reminds me of ABBA. Ooh, I don't know if you hear yeah. it. If you just, there's just one line that she nails. I was like, God, that sounds like Frida. <laughs> oh, nice. so, I'll have to listen to it again. Yeah, like that. Yeah. And then softy. I've never heard of softy. Who is she? She is new or, you know, her name is Nina Grohlman. She's from Brooklyn. She has been signed to City Slang, which is a Berlin indie record label that a lot of US acts use to kind of get their European distributor distribution. You mm-hmm. know, it's so like I have some imports that, you know, have like Not a Surf or Arcade Fire, Yola Tango, like stuff like that. So Nina, under the name Softy, went to Berlin and recorded this record. And I just absolutely love it. Gorgeous. It's a f- sophisticated, but yeah. it's totally like yeah. in the lane of what's really happening in terms of youth pop right now. It could have been a breakup album like Taylor Swift has made billions of dollars off of. (laughs) But this particular cycle takes her from breakup all the way through finding new romance and moving forward again because she's now found someone new and is already engaged. And so during the end of a relationship and the beginning of a new one, she wrote all the songs for this. It's a great song cycle. I just put it on. It sounded amazing on my system. Once again, I just love really well-produced Mm-hmm, albums too. and i love yeah. well-packaged albums too so it's in a you know digi pack but beautiful like their cardboard stock is nice the artwork is really nice it comes with a little poster in there and i just like okay someone's still putting attention to detail in you know the cd representation but it also is on green vinyl too so i think fans that really like her should check it out isn't enough is one of her first videos from this where she actually plays both a character that to me looks just like beck hansen as well huh. as maya hawk you know, so she actually looks a lot like Maya Hawk, you know, Ethan Hawk and um, uh-huh. Thurman's uh-huh. daughter, who's on Stranger Things. So they do kind of look like twins. And maybe, you know, Maya Hawk's mm-hmm. doing her own albums now. Maybe they could do a duet down the road. My takeaway from it was was that it, it has her voices. There's an ethereal quality to it. Uh, and then it's laced into sort of a mid-tempo dance groove. It's not like thumping. This is not a thumping record. It's like you, like you said earlier, this is a bit more of a mature pop sounding album. Softy, S-O-F-T-E-E, Natural is the name of the record. It's on City Slang, and I highly recommend people check it out. So this next artist, I guess if you're roughly now the same age as Gordon Lightfoot and you fronted Mott the Hoople, you know a lot of people in the music industry. And you could probably call on these folks to show up if you're saying, I'm making a new album. So. God, like, and yeah, it's one of those things where we've been talking about this a lot because a couple of episodes ago, we talked about the Brother Johnny record, which Mm -hmm. was Edgar Winter's tribute to his departed brother, Johnny Winter, that had literally everybody who's anybody on this record. And so now in the last year, we have talked about the Eddie Vedder record, the Ozzy Osbourne, the Iggy Pop. There's a shelved Morrissey record that has all these ringers on it. So you know, just listen to who's on this particular record, Defiance Part 1 by Ian Hunter. You got Ringo Starr, Todd Rundgren, Jeff Beck, and Taylor Hawkins, who have passed since the recording. Johnny Depp, Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top, Jeff Tweedy, Joe Elliott from Def Leppard, Brad Whitford from Aerosmith, 
Duff McKagan and Slash from Guns N' Roses, Mike Campbell, you know, from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, yeah, yeah. Robert Torillo, you know, who's, you know, from Metallica. Metallica. And the thing is, it really sounds like a completely cohesive record. To me, it actually sounded a lot like a Joe Strummer record. Hmm. You know, so like, because yeah. I love the late era Joe Strummer stuff before he passed. And so you've got some barn burners on there, like Bed of Roses, and then No Hard Feelings has an exquisite Jeff Beck guitar solo, but then it has Johnny Depp playing slide guitar. And then that goes right into Ian Hunter fronting Stone Temple Pilots, basically, because <laughs> Dean and Robert DeLeo are on that. It's a really, really good record. And the CD actually ends with a second take on the single I Hate Hate with Jeff Tweedy from Wilco on that one. And now we're moving on to a band that's not shy about their fandom of Woody Guthrie. Yeah. And so Dropkick Murphys last year, they put out a full album of um, taking lyrics and poems from Woody Guthrie's journals and creating this machine still kills fascists, which was Mm -hmm. their last album. Their new one, Okama rising came out this week, mid May. And it's a whole, once again, full album of acoustic songs that basically bring to life Woody's words, you know, because they had one of their biggest ever hits shipping up to Boston, which was a full throttle rocker that, you know, was penned by Guthrie. And so on this album, they actually revisit that song doing a nice acoustic version of it. Violent Femmes guests on this record. Yeah, yeah. I did hear that earlier today. I was like, oh, look at that. Violent Femmes are on there. Yeah, so it's one of those things where everyone in the band except singer Al Barr is on this record because Al Barr had to tend to some COVID-related family stuff. But the Murphys have promised they're back with a full-throttle rock record maybe this fall. But, you know, we got two nice full acoustic versions or uh, albums from them this year. And they just celebrated their 25th anniversary, which means they're Rock Hall eligible. Will they ever get in? Who knows? But man, they deserve it. I mean, they have basically had top 10 records on Billboard 200. Two of their albums debuted in the top 10. They could sell out arenas and stadiums and ballparks. They're popular in Europe as well as here. And I honestly fully believe they're never going to get into the Rock Hall. I think you're probably right. And the title of the album, Okama Rising, Okama was the birthplace of Woody Guthrie, right? In Oklahoma? I, believe that's I, I have no was. idea. I've, it's one no. of those things where I've just been enjoying the music and I've okay. really <laughs> gone too deep on that. You always go so deep, Ted. I love Sorry. the fact <laughs> you do some good researching. <laughs> Well, this next pick is, and I'm just going to say that it reminded me if you took two sort of disparate uh, artists, performers, and you meld them together. So you take uh, the album, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, which was made by David Byrne and Brian Eno, and you merge it with New Order. (laughs) I love that. I would have never thought of that. I'm listening to this record. I'm all like, gosh, this sounds like that David Byrne, Brian Eno thing, but Boy, there's a little new order going on here too. So who is this? Who is this band? What is this thing that I, that so, you sent me to listen to? <laughs> my life with a thrill kill cult. So yes. I discovered this band in '88 when you know the vinyl showed up at you know my Kent State University radio station. Their big single at the time was "This Is What the Devil Does," and really, really dark, kind of gothic industrial. But it's disco and it's sleazy, you know, and it's one of those things where I had no idea because I was in Ohio at the time. I wind up spending the 90s in Chicago and Wax Tracks still had the record store on Lincoln Avenue. And it's like going to Mecca because Wax Tracks was just such a seminal 
album label in the 80s. So by the time I got to, you know, the 90s, I was able to see the recording studio where a lot of these epic records were released or recorded. Then you go to the record store in Lincoln Avenue. Oddly enough, fun aside, that record store, Wax Tracks, which was next to the Biograph where Dillinger was shot. I went to that record store and that's how I got cast as an extra. Well, not cast, but picked as an extra to be in High Fidelity, the movie. So I have oh. a nice little connection to Wax Tracks Records. But can you can you see yourself in that movie? I mean, can we, yeah. Have, where what scene are you in? <laughs> there is a, okay. That's a quick aside, but yeah, it's basically okay. on the DVD. It's like Chapter Nineteen. So it's a point where Rob gets a phone call from Catherine mm-hmm. Jones inviting him to the dinner party, and you could see me as a record store customer in that scene. Yeah. The funny thing about it was we had shot this out al- this scene, and I was principally featured in it where Cusack's character was in such a bad mood that he rips the album out of my hand saying it's not for sale. Yeah. And so every time we did another take, I had a different record in my hand just because I was supposed <laughs> to pick one randomly. And then he would try to read the name of the title. And then half the time he laughed. I'm like, Oh my God, we're going to wind up in the, you know, the outtake reel. <laughs> and so we shot this thing from all, every angle imaginable. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm going to be a movie star. This is amazing. And then the um, one of the assistant directors, I guess the background director, says, let, he's looking at the dailies, like the, what they shot on video at the same time. And he said, it's too distracting because Jack Black was in, walking around the background of the scene, imitating the other extra. There was another extra in the same scene and Jack Black was kind of imitating him. And they said, it's pulling too much focus on Cusack. Yeah. It doesn't work. By then, the crew had already struck the set. And so they're like, oh, crap. So they reshot the entire thing in one take on a broken set. And you could see me over Kusak's shoulder just checking out and leaving, you know. But I'm still visible. I can still see myself. But yeah, I keep hoping that the Criterion Collection comes out. But I got to, you know, hang out with Kusak and Jack Black and Todd Luiso for a full afternoon. So it was a blast. That's a a great story. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the Throw Kill Cult, these guys were they worked at wax tracks and they recorded, you know, some demos in their apartment. And so then showed them to the owners of wax tracks, the store, which also ran wax tracks, the label, they loved it so much. They signed them. And then all of a sudden these guys become like, you know, a bonafide sensation. So sex on wheels was a huge MTV smash. And so they're at four discs now into their Sinister Whispers series where they're revisiting all their different eras and just kind of like mining, you know, tapes that just never got released that are kind of worthy for their fans to hear. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I have this album on MP3 burned to a CDR and they said these are unproduced demo tapes, but to me they sound really fantastic for unproduced demo tapes. So I have Sinister Whispers, the tracks era, on cd and i'm hoping they put this out on cd but right now it's just available digitally so but gotcha. really really cool stuff i mean dark weird yeah, loose, definitely fully realized ideas we're coming to our last artist that we're going to feature and one that also was featured in a movie so josie cotton's johnny are you queer is a staple on new wave hits of the 80s compilations mm-hmm. like you almost always hear it she was it was in the movie valley girl i think she was right. in the movie valley she girl was. too. yeah they she played the prom or her band she and the band played the prom i think that's yeah i think that there was, was like three movie. tracks in there yeah. and so oddly enough you know she cotton and adam ant were also in a movie called nomads starring pierce brosnan 
wow. you know, some post-apocalyptic thriller that he was, you know, trying to do to get away from his Remington Steel image at the time. Gotcha. So that was in 86. But, you know, so she kind of lives in that John Waters, high camp, new wave kind of space. Definitely. And, but she's That's been sporadically way. putting out records over the years outside of that real hit um, or the first big hit. But, you know, Lindsey Buckingham, Fleetwood Mac, played on Jimmy Loves Marianne from her follow-up record. And I really, really love the new album, Day of the Gun, because it really starts off in that same genre. We're like, oh, these tracks could have all existed on her early 80s work. But then it kind of like midway through really kind of finds its weight and its meaning. And she has a spaghetti Western song called Ukrainian Cowboy that oddly enough came out three years ago that they put on this record. Thank God, because it's a really good single. It is. It's pretty good. I was, I was surprised by it. I thought uh, the title alone, I was like, okay, what could this be about? And I thought, oh, it's, it works. It really oh my does. God. And I highly recommend the video. So yeah, for listeners, check out the video for Ukrainian Cowboy. It's really, really funny. High camp, total John Waters type stuff. Same with her single for Disco Ball. She's probably my age or a little bit more. You know, she's doing this whole dance sequence in the Disco Ball. She kind of has moves like I would have, but it's one of those things for really charming stuff. I love the record. I actually ordered it on CD. I had a promo sent to me, but I'm like, okay, I can't live with the MP3 of this. I need to have this full throttle. So I have a CD coming. Can't wait to hear it. Yeah. really love that Josie Cotton is, you know, another icon of another era is putting out new music is still relevant and really entertaining. So. And, and you said that you thought that Josie Cotton was around the same age as you? I think so. Yeah. No, my friend. Oh, she must really? She's 67 years old. Oh, okay. Well, that just shows how old I feel. That just shows how old I feel on any given day. I was thinking about the single, Johnny, Are You Queer? And I think my brother may still have the 45. A neighbor of ours, she was big in into new wave in the early eighties. And she bought yeah. a bunch of singles and brought it over to our house. Cause my brother built a pirate radio station, like yeah. 10 Watts, I think, but it was, it was definitely pirate. I remember when the single had come out, there was some kind of controversy controversy around right. it from the religious right and from the left as well. So well, I wouldn't say the left, oh, but God, I would say yeah. religious right. And then, you know, sort of, Main, I don't even want to call it mainstream, but yeah. advocate. So the advocate yeah. to me, it's like a mainstream gay magazine in yeah. a way. Did they have a so problem with it? They did. They 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 really didn't like it. They said the title in the advocate, I think, was Josie. Why are you a bitch or something oh like that? Oh my god! Was the advocate were, around that? Is that the advocate been around yeah. all these years? Yeah, the advocate is, okay. a, is, a, is an old publication. Okay. But it's basically and, it's, she's not getting the attention that she's expecting from her boyfriend, and so she's exactly. saying, oh, "Johnny, are you queer? You're not give, you're not loving me the way I want you to love me." You know, right? So. And, I, and I think I think their issue was that just because Johnny doesn't seem to like you doesn't automatically mean it's because he must be gay. Maybe he's just not that into you. Have you ever thought of that? <laughs> but I think that's what the whole song is about. When you listen yeah. to it, she's kind of realizing that, yeah, this dude is just not into her, you know? Yeah. And so, right. I mean, you think about, you know, there's so many songs that definitely haven't aged in terms of, especially LGBTQ issues. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, look at Dude Looks Like a Lady, you know, right. from Aerosmith right. and yeah. Lola by the Kinks and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And so mm-hmm. it's just one of those things where, you know, we could appreciate how far we've come, but I also thought this would 
it was just so loving and seemed like like she's not downplaying it you know like no. bambi by prince he's basically saying oh no it's better with a man you know and yeah. nobody gave prince slack i doubt the advocate you know slam prince for bambi i don't think, think it's she, a tongue-in-cheek song she said that a lot of fans of the song had come up to her over the years and said this helped me come to terms with my sexuality it was really helpful in, in terms of coming out and embracing who i am and so they didn't take it in, in the negative way that the advocate did. And the religious right was just being, you know, the, the religious oh, right. Yeah. They were just saying, you know, they did. This is a, a song uh, trying to get people to convert to yeah. homosexuality. And I don't know why we sound like this when I imitate yeah. people on the religious But it's one of those things where, yeah, the, the religious right doesn't want anybody, the, even the existence of gay, anything outside the mainstream, yet the religious right also consumes more gay porn than anything else. You know, wow. Pornhub has shown that oh, time and again with their stats. You know, they know exactly who's watching what and where. And you look at the Bible Belt, and that is where all the gay porn is. That's some interesting trivia that I didn't know. And I think we're all enlightened now. And I think we've yeah. come to the close, right, of, yeah. uh, of our new music release. I know you said get ready for June. But yeah. I felt like with with what you gave us this month, there's plenty to choose from. There's a wide variety of music that you can you can go to. So yeah. I just want to thank you, Keith, for as always coming on. Love it when you come on. Yeah. I know our listeners do too. Thanks to Jeff Giles as well for talking about Gordon Lightfoot. So we will see you next month, Keith, right? Next month's gonna be the biggest month of all time on the planet LP, I guarantee you. Oh, whoa. Okay. So we might have to do two episodes, right? <laughs> Break it go. apart. Yeah. If you actually, oh. we have 30 seconds. Just listen to who is releasing an album just on June 2nd. Christina Aguilera, Bob Dylan, Cowboy Junkies, Foo Fighters, John Mellencamp, Rancid, Tanya Tucker, Roger Waters. So literally Jeez, June, nice. it's going to be huge. Okay. I think we might have to split this episode. We'll apart. do two episodes. <laughs> two episodes we might. Okay. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. I'll be back soon to talk more about music right here on the Planet LP Podcast. So long for now.